Episode 74, Cryptocurrency and Smart Contracts with Amy Wan. Take it away, Patrick. Hey, everyone. Uh, we're here with Amy, the CEO of uh, SageWise, and we're glad to have you here of what is obviously a much-discussed topic of the day with uh, anything dealing with cryptocurrency seems to make people excited, and increasingly more peers and random people we meet tend to want to uh, perk up and involve themselves in any conversation involving that, mostly because I think they're going to get rich. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, so Amy, why don't you take a second to introduce yourself and uh, tell us what, you, uh, what you're doing. Sure. So thanks so much for having on, me on the show, guys. My name is Amy Wan. I am founder and CEO of SageWise, which is a dispute resolution infrastructure for smart contracts. Um, my background is actually, I'm an attorney by training. So um, you know, I started my career off in the federal government doing international affairs, international regulatory and, and trade type issues. When I moved um, from D.C. back to California, there were obviously no free trade agreements to negotiate out here in California. And so, you know, kind of had to start my career all over again, um, was basically general counsel and employee number one of an early stage real estate crowdfunding startup. And then from there, I went to become partner at a boutique securities law firm and got to a point in my career, really, where I just couldn't imagine practicing law um, the same way for you know the next 30, 40 years. So I actually left my partnership at law, my law firm and started this company. And the original purpose of this company was really to automate my job as an attorney. So that's what I did. I pushed out software that would automate the drafting of small, you know, real estate funds, real estate, private equity funds, crowdfunding syndication funds. But um, basically, last year, I started getting a lot of calls from people who wanted to do an ICO. An ICO is an initial coin offering. And so I looked into the space and, you know, more than, uh, you know, I basically looked into the space and I thought there was something fundamentally wrong with the space, right? If you were watching this entire space last summer, you would basically see ICOs come out. And in the first 15 minutes, they would get hacked two to $3 million. And the founders would sit there and shrug their shoulders and say, oops, sorry, there's nothing we can do. I thought, gosh, this is really strange. In the real world, when you lose 2 to $3 million, you get slapped with a lawsuit. And so I started digging into why and basically realized that smart contracts are, in many cases, not actually very smart. In fact, they're incredibly smart. Stupid, which is why, <laughs> <laughs> which is why we're you know doing what we're doing now. We're basically building an infrastructure or a layer for dispute resolution in case um, smart contracts fail. So, so that was obviously like a lot of stuff. So, um, you know, kind of taking it back a step, can you sort of give a, a high level overview? You know, when we say cryptocurrency, blockchain, uh, and you know, kind of especially why people might just shrug their shoulders and, and sort of give up, you know, things like decentralized immutability. Can you sort of give us like a 
brief overview of kind of what those things are supposed to mean and then, you know, kind of why you find that they aren't always what people assume? Yeah, sure. So blockchain, if you're going to define blockchain, um, I think we really also need to sit here and define what a distributed ledger is, right? So think about, um, I don't know, your bank account, for example. You kind of have a ledger there or an accounting of all the transactions you've had, but it's centralized. You know, you either you or your accountant or someone has one copy of this and if that copy is wrong or if that copy is forged or fraudulent then there's obviously going to be a problem um blockchain is the technology that kind of underlies all this cryptocurrency stuff that everyone's talking about and what it really is is it's meant to be a trustless system right and I say trustless and and it's also decentralized because it basically works like this. Instead of one person having um, one copy of a ledger, instead think of it as maybe we've got this whole network of people, right? And every time a transaction happens, that transaction gets recorded to the ledger, but it doesn't get recorded to one ledger. It gets recorded to everyone's ledger at the same time, and the ledgers are always syncing, right? And so there's not one person with a right or wrong copy. Everyone has the same copy, and it can't really be forged because everyone's copy is the same. So so that's basically the premise of blockchain distributed ledger technology. Now, cryptocurrency is one use case of blockchain. And and you can really have many different use cases. Um, it, I think cryptocurrency is just, uh, you know, one of the more popular ones because basically, you know, back in, I think, what was it, 2008, 2009, uh, an, anon- an anonymous person, uh, everyone calls them Satoshi, basically came out with this white paper Um, that introduced this technology and the way they introduced it um, was through a cryptocurrency. And that cryptocurrency, as everyone knows today, is Bitcoin, right? And so this anonymous person put this thing out into the world and slowly, slowly, slowly it began to gain adoption. But then when people were reading about it, they're like, well, I'm going to make my own cryptocurrency. And so that's why you have these things called altcoins, alternative coins, right? So, you know, um, you not only have have Bitcoin today, you've got things like Dogecoin and all these other coins. So there's a lot of different types of cryptocurrencies. So, um, sorry so, to interrupt. So, yeah. one thing, so this is one thing I've always kind of wondered is, uh, going back to the blockchain, what's to stop me and, like, you know, some of my friends, or maybe I make a post on Facebook and I get everyone who's following me on Facebook. What's to stop all of us from getting together, maybe me and a hundred people, and saying, you know, Amy Wan gave me all of her money? Or like if all of us, you know, somehow said that and agreed to that, the hundred of us, uh, you know, what's to stop that from being reality? In other words, like who's watching the Watchmen or who are the Watchmen, I guess? Like, like, what's to stop, you know, like a, a group of people from just saying something happened when it really didn't? So, you know, um, right now we're talking about public blockchains as opposed to private ones. And 
I can talk about private ones in a little bit, but public ones are basically, you know, it's exactly as it sounds. Like it's out in the public and everyone who's in this network has a copy of this ledger and it's continually sinking, right? You might not know who is... Um, uh, who are the other nine parties or 900 parties or 9,000 parties that have this ledger, which makes it very difficult to, you know, basically uh, create some sort of fraudulent transaction on the blockchain. Now, there are private blockchains. Um, so there's a lot of like Fortune 500 companies and things of that sort that are more so looking to private blockchains. Um, the reason why they're specifically interested in private blockchains is because you still do have a little bit more of a degree of control, right? And so if there truly is a mistake, there actually is a way to go back and, and edit it a little bit more. I think the other thing, Jason, is what you find is partly the, the big criticism in the public news that has come up with Bitcoin about mining is because of that. So the idea is that you have to do a bunch of work in order to to kind of commit a transaction to the chain. And so in order to kind of rewrite history, you would need more than 51% of that capacity in order to, to form a majority. Um, and if you were going to do that, you have two problems. One, it's very expensive to do that. And the second thing is now you've sort of undermined the integrity of the very thing you're trying to steal. So oh, you've spent all this money to to commit this fraud, but at the same time, you now hold Bitcoins that you stole from Amy that are worth <laughs> less because you crashed the market because everyone goes, oh, now we got hacked. Oh, I see. So, uh, and and then there's other ways of, of sort of like proof of stake you'll hear about or whatever that I think are trying to solve the same problem, but it basically amounts mm -hmm. to people having to spend resources to alter something where then they actually undermine their own work in doing so. I see, I see. So, uh, got it, that makes sense. Yeah, so, yeah, so for I, me to uh, pretend like Amy sent me all of her money, I need to sort of reverse engineer her private key and that would take so much effort that uh, if someone could do that, then the whole thing kind of falls apart. Well, you know, the difficulty, I think, um, aside from the resources issue is, you know, you would have to attempt to go and change everyone else's uh, record or tr transactional history, that, that ledger, right? And that is so difficult. I mean, there have been instances in which this has been done before. Um, so, for example, um, every time they... Uh, hard fork Ethereum, right? Ethereum is uh, a very popular blockchain or protocol. Um, they, you know, they've done it in the past very rarely, very sparingly, but when they have done it, it was to fix a, a big thing that was not meant to happen. Got it. Makes sense. And and so, yeah, that's a good, good point. So you were talking first about, uh, you know, cryptocurrency, but then smart contracts... How do smart contracts differ from uh, cryptocurrency? Right. So smart contracts are just a completely separate or different tool, right? A smart contract is basically, I would say it's like an English contract except written in code. So 
um, I heard, once heard someone say like they thought the uh, name of it was was not great. They would rather call it programmable contracts, and I I would tend to agree. A smart contract is really nothing more than a set of if-then clauses, right? And so a smart contract is meant to be self-executing and immutable. So if you and I entered a smart contract to say, hey, the Raiders, um, you know, let's bet one Bitcoin on who's going to win the Raiders versus whatever game. And if the Raiders win, you get the Bitcoin. If the other team wins, I get the Bitcoin, right? And so um, when the Raiders play, uh, you know, there's going to be some certain outcome and the smart contract would automatically know, okay, the Raiders won, so you get the Bitcoin. It's it's just a set of if-then clauses, really. I see. So the smart contracts like somehow uh, has some interface to some other phenomena in the world. Like, like there's maybe the NFL has an API or something like that. And the smart contract has an interface to that. And as soon as that updates, the smart contract fires. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one way you could do it. Um, so there are these cons, there, there's a bunch of different things actually. So one concept is that of an Oracle An Oracle is, um, some sort of, you know, third party that verifies some sort of facts. So you could, um, go go to an oracle and use that to see w- you know whether the raiders won at the same time you can use nodes right so there's a lot of different ways you can do this but um, but that's you know I, I'm, I'm highly simplifying all of this but that's basically it in a nutshell I, I think one way you might be able to think of a smart contract um, that really kind of is in the real world today is, you know, when you go and you trade stocks and you say, hey, when ABC stock goes above $20, uh, I want to sell it or something like that, right? And so the minute it goes above $20, it automatically executes. Oh, okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. So, so you said, you know, you, you kind of think that the smart contracts are often dumb or, you know, that they're, they're just programmable things. And I, I think that makes sense that, you know, like you said, they're just a program. They're just doing what they're being programmed to do. But what do you kind of find as like a m- misconception around this sort of, I, I don't know if it's serious or not, but the, you know, Internet's view that, oh, we, we won't need lawyers anymore because the contract is code and the code is the contract. Yeah, so there's definitely philosophy that code is law, right? But I think um, if you've seen what's happened over the past two years, there's a lot of problems with that philosophy. And so I think the first big um, example of this was the DAO. The DAO was the Decentralized Autonomous Organization. It was basically a decentralized fund, right? People pooled money together, and then they were all supposed to vote about, hey, let's fund this project, or no, let's fund this project. And the rules of the community were all written in code in a gigantic smart contract, except the problem was that the smart contract, you know, I guess just wasn't really well written. And so one community member went in and saw a security vulnerability in the code. And so they basically executed a hack 
against the smart contract. Now, it wasn't against the terms of the smart contract, but it was certainly against the intent of the smart contract. And the result of that was basically that the Dow got drained of, what, $50, $60 million worth of funds at the time. And in order to, you know, prevent the hacker from getting away with this, um, they had to go hard fork Ethereum. So, you know, that happened in 2016. Um, you know, $50, $60 million was lost in, uh, or, or almost lost in that transaction had they not reversed it or hard forked it. 2017 got even worse, right? Um, I recently saw uh, a statistic that the the equivalent value of $1 billion U.S. dollars was lost in smart contracts in 2017. Um, lots of ICOs got hacked, right? And so what you're starting to see is that smart contracts, in fact, maybe this whole immutability thing is not such a good thing, right? Um, you've got coding errors, for example. You know, developers often are like, you know, uh, fail fast and, and iterate. But if that's what you're doing with a smart contract, then... A lot of smart contracts are going to fail from sloppy coding. Then you've got, you know, security vulnerabilities. You know, a lot of people today using smart contracts, they will go get a security audit on the smart contract, but that only will detect the presence of vulnerabilities. It won't necessarily detect or guarantee the absence of them, right? And then the third thing really is that the more complex people are writing their smart contracts to be, um, the more people are going to modify need to modify, amend, or terminate these smart contracts because guess what? You know, the world is, it's its not just a yes, no, black and white place. It's actually really complex. Things happen. Situations change, right? And so, you know, having been an attorney who's dealt with a lot of contracts, dealt with a lot of disputes, you see a lot of different things, right? And so, um, that's really the problem that we see today with smart contracts. So, so uh, you know, I've always kind of wondered, which is, you know, uh, you, you see someone will post up that they're, you know, exploring using smart contracts for escrow for real estate. Um, how does, how does, so, I mean, A, kind of like, do you have any thoughts on that? It's a good idea, bad idea. That seems awesome. I don't know, whatever. But also, like, how does it end up interfacing? Because obviously, the you know U.S. law or the state law or whatever applicable law might be. I'm using the wrong terms. You can correct them. Um, is doesn't have in there what to do in case of problems in a smart contract for escrow of real estate. Um, like how does the current actual law of the land interface with this new way of trying to do stuff? Sure. So um, the interesting thing about smart contracts, as you say, is it can house assets, right? It can house tokens or cryptocurrency or whatever, right? And so a smart contract in some ways you you can think of it like an escrow, except it's um, supposed to be self-executing. It's it's not centralized, right? If you go to a traditional escrow company that's highly centralized, it's run by human beings at the end of the day. Um, so in some ways, a smart contract can act as escrow. Now, with regard to applying it in the real estate space, um, <laughs> I actually get a lot of calls from folks who are like, oh, we want to do some sort of real estate ICO, something with the real estate and smart contracts and blockchain, blah, blah, blah. Um, a lot of these times, I, I think a lot of people either don't really know what blockchain or smart contracts 
do or, you know, or they don't really understand real estate. Um, I think a lot of, you know, you certainly can use a smart contract to escrow those funds, but at the same time, you know, the reason why real estate transactions take such a long amount of time isn't necessarily because of escrow, it's because of all the due diligence that needs to be done, right? You gotta walk through the house, you gotta make sure uh, environmentally it's fine, there's no damage you have to do, you have to go get state title, um, you know, you have to get title insurance, all these things. So, you know, I think to say that, um, you know, escrowing funds for real estate transactions in smart contracts will cure all our problems and make real estate transactions go so much faster. Um, I I think that's a little bit of an oversimplification. Um, And Again, I'm speaking from a perspective of how real estate transactions work in the United States. Now, oh, yeah, with fair respect <laughs> to, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily work the same in all countries across the globe, right? And so that brings me to my next point, which is in terms of how the law treats it, right now, you know, we are at the very beginning stages of this entire industry. And I don't think the legal system has really caught up and has really contemplated um, how they're going to treat smart contracts or, you know, um, digital transactions. I mean, uh, you know, we now have the eSign Act, which, you know, basically allows for e-signatures. That took a while. It's going to take a while for the law to catch up with all the stuff around blockchain and smart contracts, right? Delaware, I would say, is actually one jurisdiction that is really ahead of the curve. Um, They recently approved a law that allows for uh, corporations to, um, you know, basically be on the blockchain, if you will. Um, So they're they're thinking a lot ahead. And then there's certainly other countries across the world that are really starting to look into this. Um, But you're right. It is a pretty complex issue. So maybe this will dovetail into the dispute resolution stuff you mentioned. But the thing that I've always tried to sort of get my head around is, uh, so so I guess to explain kind of, and I'll do my job, I'll try it, and I'll probably do a bad job and you can fix it. Um, But so escrow, what what that sort of means is like if you go to buy a house, that there's going to be a lot of people who are going to have to do a lot of work to kind of allow house buying to happen. And so you, until the, transaction is complete, the person who wants to buy the house essentially puts some money away in the hands of a kind of third party, uh, an escrow, someone who holds the escrow account. You put the money there in this escrow account. And once the money's there, you kind of no longer have access to it as the person buying the property. But the person who you're buying from also doesn't have access to it. And then everyone goes through this sort of, I guess you would call it like good faith effort of trying to make the sale happen. Uh, And then at the end, Ideally, everyone agrees that, yay, we're now we're ready, and the escrow money gets transferred to um, some set of parties, but basically to the person who is selling the thing from the person who is buying it. Um, and the reason why you might want an escrow account there is that while those real-world things are happening, you know that the money's not going to go away or, or disappear. Um, but for me, the other thing that I've always tried to figure out is if you kind of do this with the smart contract, like, you know, I send some Ethereum to a contract and until both Jason and I use our private keys to make some transaction that says the money should be released, it gets held there. 
But the problem is like what happens when we have a disagreement? So normally, as far as I understand it, the person holding the escrow would be responsible for taking a first pass at trying to, you know, figure out what should happen to the money that's in the escrow account. But in terms of a smart contract, it never made sense to me. Like you kind of do want a human there to sort of interface with the, you know, attorneys, the law, the kind of thing that would happen when Jason and I have a dispute about what actually happened while we were trying to do this. Yeah, I mean, I really couldn't have explained it better myself, right? And so, you know, I, as much as I think there's a, there's definitely technologists out there who are like, oh, everything should be immutable, everything should be self-executing, we shouldn't have human beings involved. The truth is the world is a very complex place, and I will let you know that, you know, human beings are very complex, creative creatures. Surprise! Um, <laughs> right and so i mean you would not believe the things i have seen in my career like yeah people are very very creative in trying to get out of these things and so that's why you will have situations i think where dispute resolution really is necessary for all of those edge cases where you know things just aren't black and white yeah that makes sense i think that that uh you know tying this into an episode we did earlier where i talked about um uh, now, like the latest in in AI for games and things like that is is basically predicting what your opponent wants. It turns out this is like, and this is revolutionizing AI. It's also revolutionizing economics, things like that. And basically, people used to say, "Oh, let's find the Nash equilibrium, or let's get the perfect auction, and all of these things." And it, <laughs> it, it's kind of similar to what you were saying that people felt like there was this like pure solution. What people are finding now is, no, like the price of things are is based on psychology to a large degree. And the, the way people behave in auctions is not, you know, as John Nash would have wanted. And so what's really what really matters is 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 modeling the people involved and knowing sort of what their value is, whether that's rational or not, and then working within the confines of that. So if, if we're in an auction situation, it's playing the best response to the other people, um, you know, whatever auction strategy they're doing. And so in the case of like a, a real estate dispute, you have two people or maybe even more people who have, who have different sets of values and you have, to, you have to take those sets of values into account when you're rationalizing this dispute. And I think those values are very hard to codify because it it involves sort of a lot of common sense reasoning and human nature and these kind of things that you're not going to write in a smart contract. I mean, yeah, you hit it. You hit the nail on the head. The way I <laughs> explain these things to technologists is, look, you know, we've we've been trying for millennia to figure out what justice and what fairness is, right? And if it were truly as simple as a little bit of game theory and a couple of algorithms, then, you know, we would have figured this out a long time ago. <laughs> you wouldn't have, you know, philosophers since the time of Plato writing about, you know, what are the theories and principles of justice because you could all just distill it down to, to math. But, you know... Like I said, things are things are not that simple. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think exactly. as a as a technologist trying to you, you sort of hear like the legal code. Maybe I don't know if it's just the word code that like throws us off. But I remember you know when in in sort of school taking a class about about law and 
always, you know, having these people who were, I, so I took it with mostly people who were uh, in the CS department and everyone was always trying to figure out like, what's the little loophole to the law? Like, <laughs> oh, you're not allowed to scalp tickets because, um, you know, it's against the terms of service of the thing. But if I sell you a pencil for a very large sum of money and give you a ticket with it, um, you know, to a concert, like that would be okay. Um, and all these like, you know, crafty things, because in code, that's what we do. Like, oh, if I, you know, oversize this buffer, I can cause a buffer overflow here. Or if I, you know, my code is breaking here because there's this one corner case. And so I feel like as a programmer, at least I try to think of like, what are the kind of cutesy loopholes I could find in the law that would like, oh, yeah, this is totally legal now. Um, but I think it, it was interesting to me to to kind of hear like the frustration from the lawyer who was teaching the class being like, that's not how this works. Um, <laughs> you know, that there is a lot about intent and stuff that has to go before a jury or a judge and they use their discretion about what you were trying to and what, what the law, not what the law just says in terms of actual English, right. which is in, isn't perfect, but like, what does it actually mean? Right, right. And that's what we call the spirit of the contract, right? You're really looking at intent, not just exactly what the contract says, right? Um, and, and that, you know, going back, that's basically exactly what happened to the DAO. You know, the, the hacker violated the spirit of the contract, the intent of the contract, but not necessarily the terms of the contract. So, yeah. That makes so, sense. So, I mean, it is interesting okay. to look at Oh, sorry. What I was going to say, so so interestingly, the kind of whatever psychology of the situation is somewhat played out, though, with specifically the DAO. So there's Ethereum uh, that sort of symboled by the ETH. But at the time of the hard fork, some people didn't agree that the funds should be reversed. And so they kept the course where those funds are still stolen and in the, you know, presumably that person's, I don't know, I think they haven't, they've never tried to withdraw the money, but in theory they could. And so there is a parallel or forked version of the Ethereum blockchain where those transactions were never undone, were never sort of rolled back and, and fixed. And that's this ETC, the Ethereum, Ethereum classic. And so there's actually, you can live in either version of the world you want to, but taking price as a stand-in for what people and popularity of which people voted for the i mean the price of an ethereum token today is like i, I don't know what it is right now but like a thousand dollars and i think ethereum classic token is like thirty dollars so it's interesting that despite the fact that you would say the vibe of the internet at large is probably that we want these immutable blockchain crypto decentralized you know all of the you know stuff that when the push came to shove and it was their money that got stolen, they actually voted to to, to sort of kind of undo the immutability. Um, yeah. And that's proven out by which one's valued at what today. It's so funny, right? Like people have all these concepts and these high level philosophical ideals, but when they lose money, they get angry and all the sense <laughs> and all the sense and all the pragmatism comes rolling right back in. But you're right. Like if you do look at the Dow as an example, right up until that time, everyone was like code is law, whatever the smart contract says is law. But then this hacker comes in and does something no one expects that, isn't technically against the code. It's not technically against the law, but it's against what it, it was against the community's expectations, right? And so, yes, you have, you know, obviously these these hardcore people are like, 
code is law. And then you have all these people who are suddenly like, no, we got to run to the police. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So it was really funny to to kind of just witness how how the discussion went down. Yeah, the anarchists suddenly were calling for government intervention. Yeah, it was kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, well, what police are you going to call? Like, what, what police understand what, what, what's going on, right? <laughs> I feel like yeah, this, 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 uh, this idea that uh, you know, this person is just a total anarchist, and then uh, uh, at the moment there's like a, a hint of violence, they're calling 911. That's been kind of like a motif for the whole 2017. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so I'll say that the crypto blockchain space is really interesting because, you know, it it it's not just the technology. It comes with so much underpinning, right? Like, oh, you got to be decentralized. Oh, you got to do this. There's, you know, definitely like anti-government um, anarchist tendencies. And so I think when one is thinking about an ICO or one, when one works in this space, one also needs to sit there and think about, well, how is the community going to react to this? It's It's definitely a very interesting space to be in. One question to kind of circle back a bit. So uh, we talked a little bit about ICOs and uh, uh, can you kind of describe what that is? Like, like in other words, how did even Bitcoin, Bitcoin might be a special case, I guess, because it was so early, but just how did these coins start? Like, like, like what does that mean? Like, is it, how do you, like, is it creating something out of nothing? Like, like, how, you know, kind of, how does that actually yeah. work? Yeah. It kind of is. I mean, Bitcoin was, you know, someone published um, a bunch of code out there. They put it out there. It was accompanied by a white paper that, you know, described why they were doing this and how it worked. And slowly people just started mining and adopting it. Um, and with all the other uh, coins, you know, people were like, well, why do I have to you know, mine or buy Bitcoin. I'm going to create my own different types of coins. Those are all coins. And and then you kind of had Ethereum come along. The interesting thing about Ethereum is um, even though there is like a, a payment transactional value aspect to it, um, the special case of Ethereum is it's really a protocol in which you can build other things, right? Um, so you see all these applications being built on top of Ethereum, which actually um, increases the value of Ethereum. Most smart contracts today, for example, are done on Ethereum. Um, now, ICOs aren't really coins. And we're getting into semantics here, but they're not really coins. They're more so tokens, right? And so, uh, you know, part of the reason why this space evolved is because people wanted to, uh, for example, uh, go out there and do these interesting decentralized projects, right? Um, maybe they wanted to create a decentralized in internet or do this or do that. And those types of projects, to the extent they're open source, to the extent they're decentralized, it's really hard to get funding for them. So, you know, you, you started getting, um, I think, you know, was one of the first. Dow was one of the first. You 
started seeing more and more people use an ICO as a way to raise money for a project that otherwise might not be able to get traditional funding, but might actually be an interesting project um, or infrastructure for the ecosystem. And then obviously it it's basically exploded right now. You see everyone seems to want to ICO and get on the blockchain. There are, you know, traditional companies that, you know, their business model doesn't even need blockchain. They're trying to ICO. Now, I, I think a lot of this is driven by how frothy the market is. There's there's a ton of money in the space and a lot of people are just running after the money. Um, but there still are, you know, a lot of really good projects out there that um, I think are critical to, you know, building out infrastructure of the space that, you know, if you go to Silicon Valley today, like you may not be able to get funding for it. So can you talk a little bit more like uh, sort of uh, like concretely about what actually an ICO is? Uh, so is an ICO uh, someone someone implementing uh, uh, like, 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 like cloning Bitcoin, but for tokens, like, uh, yeah, like con tactically, concretely, yeah. what's actually going on? So it can be a number of different things. Um, usually it's, uh, you know, either a company or a project that is going out and they're either building a DApp, um, which is, you know, an application on top of a protocol, or they're actually building a protocol themselves and they are using an ICO as a means of funding it, right? So usually the way they go about this is they will write a white paper. It's kind of a high-level high concept paper um, that gives you a bit of details about uh, how the project would be technically feasible. Um, they will go and assemble a team, right? So you've got the founding team. You've, you've probably got uh, a group of advisors. Um, and then, of course, everything else is, you know, the money-raising process. You've got to get your legal together, your marketing together. Um, community tends to be, or building a community tends to be really important in this space. That's how you show traction. I actually think one of the most difficult things that people don't think about enough when they are going out and launching an ICO is their token economics, right? Um, uh, I think over this last summer... I had an intern go and research a bunch of ICOs for me and pull together for me their token economics. And I, when I sat down to look at it, you literally had everything across the map, all different mm -hmm. types of allocations, all different types of systems. It was kind of like someone, you know, took a shot of tequila and threw a dart against a dartboard. <laughs> there was no art or science to this, but basically folks are going out and they're saying, hey, we're going to release X number of tokens, um, and these are what the tokens will be used for. Sometimes they have some sort of utility, like membership or ability to use um, someone's platform. You know, they might be like uh, pre-sold credits to a platform, something like that, right? That the the possibilities are endless. Um, but I think one of the problems today is that people are going out there basically, you know, guessing <laughs> on this, mi this like mini digital token economy that they're going to try and manage. And 
um, I don't think a lot of people have thought deeply about, okay, how can we make this scalable not for a couple hundred users or a couple thousand users, but for a couple millions of users. And when you reach that point and your token economics breaks down, I think people are going to have a lot of issues. <laughs> well, I mean, you point sense. out it's even interesting to see that some some but some people want inflationary economics and some people want deflationary economics. Uh, and so it doesn't even seem people are settled out about what should happen over the long term. Oh, yeah. I mean, so, oh. you see so many interesting, <laughs> creative different models, right? People are burning tokens, which means like they kind of get rid, get um, cut out from the, the finite supply. Them. Yeah, it's... Um, yeah, like I said, human beings are creative, man. <laughs> so, so um, do you can I don't know if you if you can speak to it, but I mean, I know last year the SEC also came out with an opinion about this notion of, you know, tokens and coins as a security versus being used as utility. So now you see this sort of bandied about like things that are security tokens versus things that are um, utility tokens. And like, what does that mean for s someone who wants to kind of participate in them in the US, but specifically about someone who would want to sort of do their own, you know, coin offering or token offering or whatever. Yeah, sure. So, you know, in the early days of ICOs, there was this rampant rumor running around that it was completely unregulated, which was not the case. Um, I think a lot of technologists who were doing ICOs just didn't know there were laws. Uh, in, in capital raising. And so the SEC on July 27th of 2017 came out and was like, hey, you guys, actually the same old securities laws apply. So, you know, if your ICO raise or whatever you're doing, whatever you want to call it, um, looks like it's a securities offering, you still have to follow the U.S. securities laws. Um, and they've basically reiterated that position in, you know, several statements since then. Now, I think there is this um, rumor running around that a utility token cannot be a, a security token and that they are mutually exclusive. And that is actually not the case. Um, you know, you can definitely have a, a token that is a security, but has some sort of utility function. Now, in terms of where that bright line is, it's really hard to say, right? Everyone's still sitting here waiting for the SEC to um, clarify a little bit more on what exactly all of this means. Um, so, you know, anyone who's thinking about doing an ICO should definitely hire counsel and make sure that they're doing things um, in a compliant manner. Um, I always say, you know, it's not necessarily the SEC that you have to be looking out for. You also should, also should be looking out for state regulators and the plaintiff's bar, right? Um, now, in terms of for investors, how this affects them, you know, it is very possible for um, investors to invest in an ICO that's compliant with securities law um, you know, we have the Jobs Act, which for the first time in, you know, basically forever allows non-accredited, so basically not rich investors to invest in, you know, private securities offerings. Um, specifically, the two regulations that allow for this are regulation crowdfunding and regulation A+. 
Um, so to the extent an ICO is selling their tokens, um, United States, and it is a regulatory exemption like the ones I mentioned, if they don't, they'd either be violating the law or they can only sell to people outside of the U.S. The, U the SEC, their jurisdiction is really only with U.S. investors. They only care about protecting U.S. investors. You know, foreign investors, they don't really care uh, and then I guess just for people who may not know, the SEC is Securities and Exchange Commission? Yes. Yeah. And they're traditionally the people who make sure that uh, stocks and brokerages and options and futures people all do the things they're supposed to and, and regulate them and investigate fraud. Yeah. And, you know, every... Every state also has its own version of the SEC. Um, so there are state securities regulators. And obviously there is like uh, the equivalent of an SEC in every other country, right? So even if you are selling to foreign investors, maybe you don't have to deal with the US SEC, but you might have to deal with New the New Zealand's version of the SEC or Japan's version of the SEC. Um, and some countries have been very have have come to embrace this whole ICO phenomena and other countries have actually taken a much more drastic stance um, than the SEC. So for example, China has pretty much banned ICOs. So, so this is an interesting thing that you also see on the internet. Like there's this, so, so I, I happen to know, like you pointed out that people in the US will sort of do an ICO and say, you know, not open to US investors. Um, and then there's this kind of belief that like, if I put some disclaimers on my page, that's kind of good enough from a legal standpoint, does it kind of work that way? Or like if someone in New Zealand does invest because they didn't know and, but that disclaimer was there said like, don't invest if this is illegal in your country, like how does that work out? Like, is it the burden on the person offering the security to yes. check? Yes. Okay. And so that's why we have. These wonderful AML KYC laws. AML is anti-money laundering. KYC is know your customer. It basically, uh, the function of these laws is to know the identity of the investor and make sure, you know, the identity of that or make sure that investor isn't like on some terrorist watch list or something or, you know, accused of money laundering or anything like that. citizen of right and so um people really should be doing <laughs> accurate aml kyc checks um i've definitely seen icos less so nowadays but more so in the early wild west days where folks were like okay i'm just gonna like write this on my website or in this paperwork that no one's ever gonna really read and you know we're still gonna take us investors anyway we don't really care um, some people, you know, will block U.S. investors out by their IP address, but then, of course, you know, people will VPNs go and get a VPN. Yeah, um, it's really interesting. Last Friday on the 17th, um, the Massachusetts securities regulators came out and uh, did an enforcement action against an ICO uh, run by a citizen of Massachusetts. And apparently an investigator had gone in to the system to 
try to buy into the ICO and the system purported to have AML KYC. So the investigator, you know, put in a fake, you know, name like Mickey Mouse or something like that. And then when they, uh, uh, you know, showed a picture of their their government ID, that name did not match <laughs> the name that they had put in, but they still got approved 29 minutes later. And so the investigator was able to buy into the ICO. So, you know, that was obviously mm. an AML KYC fail. Yeah. See, didn't I tell you about human beings being creative? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I want to make comments here, about uh, I'll refrain from my commentary on, on other companies doing sh shady things. But uh, yeah, it wouldn't be the first time that that company's done. So how does ICO, so is ICO, would you consider it like the, yeah, there was a lot of, there's, crowdfunding has been around forever, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the idea of sort of Groupon evolved from people who would in person get together and form a coalition. And, and, and this actually literally happens in Japan. Uh, maybe not so much anymore, but this is sort of the, the genesis of Groupon was uh, in Japan, people, you know, a hundred people would go to a TV store and say, all hundred of us will buy a TV right now, but you have to give us a 30% discount. Like that literally happened. Um, and so, you know, crowdfunding has been around forever, that kind of idea and then it really took off on the internet with, you know, Kickstarter and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so do you see ICOs as sort of like the next evolution of crowdfunding or, or, you know, is it related in any way? Oh, absolutely. I mean, ICOs are one subset of crowdfunding, right? There's so many different types of crowdfunding. You can do donation-based, rewards-based, um, you know, equity or debt crowdfunding. You can do token crowdfunding, which to me is basically an ICO. Um, and you're right, crowdfunding has been around for a long time. The Statue of Liberty, you can say, was actually crowdfunded, right? So mm -hmm. uh, I ICOs are just, you know, I suppose a newer, trendier way to do crowdfunding if you have a blockchain-related um, project or start. Oh, uh so what's the connection with the, I mean, I get that, that an ICO kind of runs on top of the blockchain, but uh, you could use it to crowdfund anything, right? Like if you, I mean, technically you could, you know, there's definitely a lot of businesses today that are like, oh, we're going to go do an ICO, right? But one of the questions, one of the first questions you're going to get from any sort of ICO investor is why uh, is your business, why is blockchain necessary for your business, right? And then Question number two will be, why is tokenization um, necessary for your business or project? And you do have to have really good answers to both of those. Um, oh, I see. But, so, uh, so how does Dogecoin yeah. answer those questions? So Dogecoin really... No, I'm just... A, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I mean, if you have a serious answer, I mean, you can answer it, but I was more... So, I was more joking. So, uh, but I guess, I mean, if I was making anything, I don't know, cookies or a video game or, or whatever, couldn't I just say you're buying, you know, one copy of this thing whenever it's done? And, I mean, uh, you could. Oh, I, I mean, I know a, a guy up in SF who's, he's tokenizing parties, you know? 
Um, you have to have at least 100 tokens to come to my party. Um, you can't <laughs> do it for anything, but, you know, obviously, you, you know, not everything is a, a gr- great idea to to tokenize. And, That's why the and, price of GPUs <laughs> has gone so high, because everyone's trying to get into this guy's party, and uh, they just <laughs> can't get so. in. Yeah, but you have to also remember, like, when you do something like, you know, put your business on the blockchain, it does also bring a lot of complexity um, to what you're doing. It it does increase costs a lot, right, on security and things like that. So that's that's one thing I would caution folks about is, you know, um, maybe you might be able to get some funding from this cool thing, but you better have great justification because it's going to bring a lot more costs and complexity mm-hmm. as well. Yep. Yeah, actually, now that you mention it, yeah, I mean, what, I I guess, how is an ICO different from me just saying, uh, oh, oh, I guess the ICO is, um, yeah, in in other words, how is an ICO different than me just saying, uh, you know, PayPal me $10 and I'll send you this game when it's ready or something like that? I mean, I guess PayPal is a centralized system. I mean, so, you know, if I could generalize about ICOs today, um, a lot of them will come out and sell their tokens for a limited amount of time. And part of the reason why they do that is psychology, right? You're you're creating FOMO, fear of missing out. Um, you know, EOS is one protocol that basically did an ICO, but... They did it for a year long. Um, I think they still might be doing it, and they're basically selling like $20 million worth of tokens every day. They've raised an insane amount. Um, But most ICOs out there are for a very short, limited amount of time, and so you know they want people to flock to them really quick. And um, you know it's it's supposed to be this whole limited time opportunity, as opposed to oh well, you can buy it whenever you want. Oh, I see. Got it. So, Amy, before we wind up, is there anything more you want to say about, like, dispute resolution, where you think the future is, advice for people? Yeah, so I would say, you know, to the extent um, any of your listeners are involved in the crypto space, um, one of the next things that we're actually pushing out is a dispute resolution intake form. You know, I get a lot of random... Uh, direct messages on Twitter and, and emails from disgruntled, disgruntled people in the crypto space who, surprise, surprise, have lost money. <laughs> and so they're unhappy and they're looking for help. Um, and, you know, I just wanted to find a way to aggregate all of these claims so that we might actually be able to help people. So whether it's against an ICO or whether you have a grievance against exchange or whatever, um, people can go to um, the the intake form, which is sagewise.io forward slash dispute. So that's S-A-G-E-W-I-S-E dot I-O forward slash dispute. And, um, you know, let us know what you have issues or concerns within the space. And we are trying to see if we can help, you know. Um, I, I think... Uh, in order for the industry to succeed, we have to, you know, hold people accountable and make sure they're not scamming other people. So, you know, I would personally love to to hear what's 
happening, what's going on in the community. Awesome. And then uh, what's it like to, you know, kind of work at SageWise? You're looking for programmers. I mean, maybe we have people who are lawyers who are listening. Yeah, are you looking for legal, you know, uh, uh, aides to help you and, and all of that? Oh, gosh. Well, we're, we'll definitely be looking for interns. <laughs> um, we actually do uh, plan on hiring um, two developers in the near-term future, um, one back-end, one front-end. I'm also looking for a chief of staff to help me out on the business marketing overall strategy side. So, yes, we're definitely hiring. And if people are just interested to follow our progress and see what happens, um, you can, you know, they can find me on all the traditional social media channels. So, LinkedIn, Twitter, I, I'm in a lot of the Facebook crypto groups, um, Instagram, right? And uh, if they want to, you know, follow our, our progress for SageWise, they can join our Telegram at t.co forward slash SageWise. All right. Very well, cool. awesome. Thank you so much. I mean, this has been, you know, I, we've never talked to a lawyer on the show before. So, yay. <laughs> congratulations. You're the first one. Uh, or, or I guess, do you, uh, anyways, it doesn't matter. And, um, you know, it's definitely an interesting and pertinent thing today. I mean, I know lots of people out there are, have at least, you know, heard about cryptocurrency and wondered what smart contracts were. And so... I think this is uh, this is a great help to people. Yeah, I feel like personally, um, there's certain things that are kind of just really hard to grasp uh, uh, f for me, and uh, you kind of like I've been you know on the earth long enough now that I kind of can gauge where I am in understanding something. And so, for example, like uh, like eigenvectors. So eigenvectors were a sort of really nebulous thing. I couldn't really you know, understand it. And then it was like, okay, I could see how people were using it, but but I couldn't, like, under the hood, I, it just didn't, it wasn't part of the fabric, I guess, of, of my consciousness. I, I couldn't really connect eigenvectors. I was choosing that kind of at random. It's like everything else I know, right? And then eventually I kind of figured it out, right? And so the same with, let's say, probably density functions or something, right? And, and so I feel like ICOs and, and blockchain, like blockchain, at this point, I have a pretty good idea. But ICOs and and uh, uh, you know cryptocurrencies and these things, it's just I feel like personally, it's just really hard to wrap my head around, you know, kind of what is actually going on. But I think I have a much better idea now than I did an hour ago, and and I feel like I'm going to wake Bizarre. up tomorrow with like a ton of questions, and and so are probably a lot of other people. And and don't hesitate to. Uh, <laughs> Uh, ping Amy or uh, or message on Google Plus, and I'll, I'll point Amy to uh, our our post on Google Plus and Facebook and all of that. So if you have any questions for her, um, you know she'll know where to to go look for that. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for coming on. This is fascinating. Fantastic! Thanks so much for having me. The intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.